0: TASS reports Russia to sell gas globally in rubles and is targeted for G20 ouster by U.S. Russia will promptly start charging unfriendly countries in rubles for gas supplies President Vladimir Putin has announced there are over 45 unfriendly countries on the list, including the U.S. and European Union members, as well as Australia, Canada, Singapore, Montenegro, and Switzerland. What does this do to the petrodollar? Well, for insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and former president of the National Economic Association, Dr. Linwood always, sir. Welcome back. Thank you. So experts interviewed by Investia are confident that it is in fact the only way to overcome the dominant role of the dollar. The idea of charging unfriendly countries in rubles for Russian gas supplies can be viewed as timely and coherent, according to Professor Yevgeny Smirnov Your thoughts, Dr. Tahid? I see this move by President Putin as checkmate.
1: Uh, yes I, it, I i I would agree this is a significant event and it's not it's not temporary it's not going to uh just uh, you know it, it uh, the sanctions that that the us has put on on Russia uh, with the eu's help uh comes as a result of of the invasion of of ukraine but but this is not going to go away the the, the, the economic effects of what Putin is doing in charging and uh, selling uh, gas in rubles is not going to go away if the war goes away. Now, it is very much in the EU's interest for the war to go away uh because if the EU if EU countries have to buy gas from Russia in rubles, they have to get rubles in order to do that. The only place you can get rubles uh, in any significant amount is from Russia. They're the creator of of that currency. And so in order for EU countries to get rubles to buy gas, which they desperately need, uh, Germany imports about 50% of its gas from Russia. Then they have to uh, either go around the country and, and buy up all the rubles that are out there in the world, uh, I don't know, but I doubt that it's enough to sustain them, or they have to begin selling things to the Russians in order for the Russians to pay in rubles, for them to turn those rubles around and buy gas. That essentially breaks the sanctions, but it also uh, it increases the value of the ruble on the world market. Um, you know, part of the, the the power of the dollar is you mentioned the term petrol dollar. Is that uh, oil uh, purchases around the world is uh, denominated in dollars. Uh, now when we become a, uh, when when we see a comp- competitive currency in the petro ruble, uh, it it also now makes the ruble a a very significant currency in the world. Uh, and And of course, China is also doing its thing in creating uh, um, oil sales in 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 yuan. And so the ruble and the yuan uh, become significant uh, international currencies, um, along with the dollar and the
2: euro. In a way, you know, if, when we look at the U.S. and you know, when they're smaller nations traditionally, they you know, the NATO, Serbia or Libya, they'd simply use military might to enforce their will. And with these sanctions, it appears Russia, having a powerful military and being a nuclear power, they determined well, our best bet here is to use, make this an economic war. And it seems to me that in this economic war. Normally, there's only casualties on one side. They're now saying, hey, look, um, Germany is going to be a, the next casualty. But Germany is, you know, has to make a decision. Either they say, yes, we'll pay in rubles, which they can't do, or no, we won't pay in rubles and we won't have any gas, which they can't do. So it's checkmate.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, the, this, this move has put uh, the EU in a, uh, a considerably uh, disadvantageous position if they want to stick with the sanctions that are directed by the U.S., um, you know, there's an old adage that nations that trade don't go to war. We should revise that: nations that trade shouldn't go to war, particularly if they have significant trade, because you can inflict significant damage on both sides. And the question here is, is which side is going to blink first? Um, Russia is. In many ways, fairly self-sufficient in, in commodities and oil and gas and wheat and other kinds of things. Uh, the, the, Europe is not self-sufficient in those things. And so when you cut off wheat, uh, when you cut off oil and gas uh, to, to Europe, they feel that immediately it, it would take some time for that effect, to, for the, the reverse effect to, to affect the, the Russia. We saw an immediate inc- increase in the value of the ruble, which had had plummeted as a result of the sanctions. Uh, it, uh, Russia is recovering the the strength of the ruble now. That means that the strength of the of the euro, and the dollar are declining relative to the euro, and so there we're we're back into a I guess a mutually assured destructive. It's destruction scenario. Uh, instead of by military power, it's by economic uh, sanction.
0: So Joe Biden is now in Brussels with with the very economic realities that you just articulated staring him in the face. And, you know, this is there are a number of facets to this To this issue, some are military. Most of them, I believe, are economic. One of them is the United States wanting to, if not control, have much greater leverage over over the oil markets, over over uh, uh, gas, gas and oil. And so, what we're seeing play out here is the unitary. you, You said earlier that when the war is over. This will not end. And that is because Russia now sees I've got the hegemon uh, by the short hairs and I'm not going to let them go. Where it Had the United States engaged in a multipolar d- dynamic, we wouldn't be where we are. But with this antiquated unitary mindset uh, – I guess he who lives by the sword will die by the sword.
1: Uh, Yes, U.S. foreign policy seems to be uh, reverting back to a Cold War strategy uh, when the Soviet Union was isolated from the rest of the world. And there was not very much trade, so that isolation didn't affect the West uh, very much, if at all. It certainly affected uh, uh, Soviet unions considerably. We have since the fall of the Soviet Union, and even earlier with China, uh, been in a situation in which the Russians and the Chinese have learned to be capitalists, at least in their production. Uh, and, and and so they have learned how to build things. Uh, they cannot be isolated from the rest of the world anymore because the rest of the world buys stuff from them. And uh, if you impose that isolation, uh, then you're, you're going to affect uh, other, other countries, not just Russia, uh, not just China. Uh, you know we're going into a back to a multipolar world, but it's it's not like the old Cold War. I, I there will be uh, possibly as many as four poles if we have Russia and China on one side, and America and the European Union on the other side. And you cannot always guarantee that the European Union is going to stick with the U.S. because the, Euro- the European Union has significant trading relationships with Russia. Uh, And and those trading relationships are going to continue. I mean, it used to be a time when, for example, you the sanctions against China there were sanctions against selling computers to China because uh, the U.S. uh, didn't want the Chinese to learn that technology. Now, computer chips are, are are made in China. They know how to do that. And 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 this and the raw materials for computer chips is comes out of Russia. Uh, so the U.S. will, you know, if, if this sanction goes into computer chips, the U.S. is going to have to figure out how to make its own computer chips. And But that also means getting the making or finding the raw materials to base those out of. And those are geological uh, distributions. They're only in
0: certain places in the world. And if those computer chips are made here, the price of the computer chip just went up exponentially.
1: Oh, a- Absolutely. Absolutely and and so uh you know if if this is if this is war uh by other means by by sanction uh it's 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 a bad it's a bad choice for uh, those in the west to want to go to war with their tra- significant trading partners in Russia and and also apparently China as well.
2: And the big the the big player that I I don't think the US really thought about, India and Russia will have currency swaps in place to finance trade in rupees and rubles, by rubles bypassing the US sanctions uh, regime against Russia. India seems to be a big player here and that at the same time as they basically force the EU to buy in rubles and to have this happen with India and Russia it seems devastating against the, do- the dollar as the international currency.
1: Yes. I mean, there, if there are 45 countries that are on that unfriendly country list, there are hundreds of countries that are not on that list. India, of course, is, is one of those uh, countries. Pakistan is also one of those countries. And, uh, you know, developments between India and Pakistan, which have been tense, are actually easing because they are uh, creating partnerships with Russia and China, which has partnerships. And so we can see uh, significant populated countries in the world um, uh, doing business with with Russia, uh, which means that they don't do business with the EU and 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 uh, the US. And in many cases, many of those countries actually export um, uh, food and other kinds of things to the EU and and to the US. Uh, if the supply chain crisis uh, has been bad in terms of inflation, it's about to get worse. It's about to get worse.
0: And looking at this uh, India Russia currency swap issue, I also then look at the impact that this is going to have uh, in the out. Months and years on a lot of these international organizations as they're talking about kicking Russia out of the G twenty. Well, the Russia uh, India is in the Quad, and so that's going to put stress on the Quad. I think the the Russian gas issue is going to put issues going to put stress on the G twenty and the G seven. And we know this could be the beginning of the end of NATO. So we could very well see after all of this dust settles. Uh, that that the 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 the, the, stru- the geopolitical structure of the world could change dramatically.
1: Well, you know it, uh, the the Biden administration's response about the wanting to kick uh, Russia out of the G20 is really symbolic. The G20 is is really a voluntary organization, and uh, there you know uh, Russia goes into the G20 because they're a significant economic uh, um, uh, um, power. Uh, but but putting them out of the G20 doesn't do anything more than the, than the sanctions have done. It's a, it, it, it pretends to do something significant, but it really is not significant. Um, I I don't I don't see that that the U.S. has a significant move to make uh, in response to this. Uh, and what Russia is doing is is uh, working on the weakest link in the U.S. Uh, European uh, linkage, which is. Europe, which is a significant trading partner in valuable commodities with, with Russia, uh, the European Union has to decide, the countries of the European Union have to decide whether they're going to pursue their own economic and national interests or they're going to continue to allow the U.S. to, to use them for the U.S. interests. Um, international business is, is, I think, pushing back. On this, because even though uh, weapons manufacturers will make a killing in this, it it actually destroys business. Uh, Every other every other industry gets destroyed in this process.
0: Dr. Linwood Tahid, thank you very much. You know the United States is is in this with Ukraine till the last Ukrainian dies, and folks in the EU will probably figure the U.S. is in this till the last German freezes. Uh, Dr. Linwood-Tahid, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Biden expresses support for expelling Russia from G20, U.S. to accept 100,000 refugees. President Biden voiced support for expelling Russia from the G20. He, uh, He made these remarks in Brussels as he announced that the United States would Take in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees and will commit more than a billion dollars in humanitarian assistance for those affected by Russia's uh, incursion in Ukraine. For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Dr. David Walalu, as always, welcome back. Good to be with you guys. So your thoughts on these moves by uh, by Biden expressing support for expelling Russia from the G20 as President Putin puts out his list of countries that he will only sell oil to based upon a ruble.
3: Well, those are very, especially the last one, it's a very interesting development. And the reason why I say it's very interesting, it's because I want your listeners to understand that when it comes down to geopolitical dynamics, you always have to look for the trends of what's going on. Why is this important? Because only a week before that, Saudi Arabia has considered now using the yuan, the Chinese currency, selling oil to China. What does it mean? If Russia will only accept the rubles and if Saudi Arabia will only accept the the yuan, what does it mean for the U.S. dollar? That's where the decline is going to be coming from, because the financial instruments that the United States has, because the U.S. has a strong on the global economy from a financial perspective. This is the whole reason why, after 1944, the Bretton Woods system set up to ensure that the dollar its dominance uh, uh, over the global uh, economy. And this is the reason why, Now Europeans would have to think now twice because if Russia said, "Oh sure, we'll sell your oil, but we're going to have to accept it in rubles, which means now the Europeans would have to go and buy rubles to make payments. Otherwise, it would be no gas
2: and as yeah once again we're talking with dr david Walalu and he has a great youtube show it's uh geopolitics and conflict so you de- basically you, you 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 really ought to uh subscribe to that and check it out i watch it all the time and um and uh, you know you've been talking about um uh, about these issues but the um the other thing here is we can talk about the money or we can talk about the strategy of Russia doing this in that the U.S. has – and you've been talking about this – the U.S. kind of holding their coalition together and the fact that they're getting some pushback from people in NATO, the NATO countries that are feeling the heat internally, economically, socially, etc. It appears to me that the Russians have said, we're going to go after your coalition. Your coalition is weak, particularly Germany, northern Europe. They need this gas. And we're going to put the pressure there and say you can either stop getting gas, which you can't do, or you can pay us in rubles, which you can't do. But you're going to have to make a a decision of one of two things. And if you pay us in rubles, then you have broken the sanctions and we win. If you don't, then your people are going to come after you and beat you over the head with baseball. But I'll put it like this. The, uh, the pitchforks and, uh, and, and torches come out if, you, if, if your people run out of gas. Your thoughts?
3: Well, you're absolutely correct, Garland, because that's exactly where things are headed. And Europeans are, some Europeans, not all, of course, some of them are coming to realize maybe this is the wrong strategy to begin with. As a matter of fact, uh, British ministers uh, in, in, in the UK government have already expressed a growing concern. And the growing concern that they expressed It wasn't about Russia. It was about the French president, Emmanuel Macron, and the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, talking to Putin. That tells you right there. Those are your key European Union players, uh, given their economy, are realizing this is not going the same direction that we ever thought of. And to me personally, and this is my personal opinion, this is the whole reason for why President Biden went to Europe to begin with. It's because they, he is realizing the cracks are expanding within this unity, so-called unity in Europe, because they realize uh, this is not going to work. And for him, by the way, for him and in President Biden, for him to say that, well, we're going to expel uh, Russia from g 20 Wait a minute. First of all, China just made it clear yesterday that no one member can expel another member because that is within his own charters. And the president himself, President Putin in this case, did confirm the attendance of G20 in Indonesia at the end of this year. So what are we talking about? It's just nothing but a bravado. And here is the key to all this, what I would like your listeners to truly grasp. Because what the media is saying versus what it is. One thing they need at least to understand is this. Ukraine is going to be the turning point now in the new global system or global order, that is. That means when we talk about moving from unipolar to multipolar, Ukraine is the beginning of it.
0: And to that point, when I look at this from a diplomatic perspective, as, as I listen to and watch uh, Wang Yi, the foreign secretary of China, when I listen to and watch uh, the foreign secretary, uh, Sergei Lavrov, these are very polished, very adept diplomats. Then you bring somebody like Liz Truss in, the foreign uh, secretary from, from Britain, who doesn't seem to know her geography. Uh, I want to say Lavrov is like 71 years old. I mean, he's been in this game a long time. And with Madeleine Albright dying and coming from the uh, Brzezinski school and the, the, the list of acolytes that have been following this Cold War mindset and mentality and current – Uh, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken being another one, uh, it really just seems to be old mindset trying to solve new problems, and they're failing miserably.
3: Well, yeah, because, in other words, you need the new tools for the new machine, and the new machine is the new global system. Mm -hmm. Gone that era where the United States used to manage the global order unilaterally. No more.
0: And, and militarily,
3: and militarily as well, because China is developing. Russia now is using some weapons that the. This is why NATO. This is why NATO declared they will not send troops to Ukraine. They know what it means. This is why President Biden is saying no fly zone. They know what it means. And basically, they are not have, They don't have tools. To, because you can't just always resolve your problem through military means. This is where diplomacy comes in. This is where sitting down and but it looks like the West is not one thing to do this because they want to push this nut. I mean, let's be realistic about what the cause of all this. And I'm going to quote here something that I dig into in my own research and find out that William Burns, who was who was the Uh, U.S. ambassador to Russia uh, from 2005 to 2008. And he wrote in his memoir, and I quote here, he wrote that sitting at the embassy in Moscow in the mid-90s, it seemed to me that NATO expansion was premature at best and needlessly provocative at worst. End of quote. So the idea of we're not even talking about the real cause of why this Ukraine crisis happened to begin with because the West and NATO's not wanting to say it. Well, say the truth and let's figure out why Russia's reacting the way it's reacting. Now the ties have turned. The West didn't expect to be dealing with Russia in this way and they are realizing, oops, maybe we've made a mistake and Europeans are coming to realize this now with Russia deciding They will accept uh, uh, only the payment in rubles. And with Saudi Arabia mentioning that, hey, we will accept the yuan, the Chinese currency, and the global order, as we know it, is about to change.
2: I also think this, and that is... This is an interesting time because, the, uh, to me, a country that the U.S. thought with the Quad would go along with them, a major country, and that's India. And India has decidedly gone with the Eurasian bloc. And what we're seeing is the actual Russia's—I'm just going to say—not Russia. The Eurasian bloc is growing and strengthening as the NATO bloc weakens, and I believe— Part of this didn't just happen yesterday. If you look at, I mean, Indonesia, they suffered in the 60s a genocide at the hands of the U.S. If you look at India, w- w- with, 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 uh, what happened with Britain, if you look at Africa and Vietnam. on and on. Right. These are countries that suffered under colonialism. And now they have an opportunity to stand up and say, we can build a new block and we won't be sanctioned and we can deal with, um, we, we can work with each other in a fair manner. I think this this is centuries of colonialism coming to uh, bringing itself to bear and creating an, a, a, an immovable block to oppose NATO. Your thoughts?
3: You hit the nail on the head, Garland. Euroasia is your keyword right there. Because if you look at history throughout the 16th century, from the Portuguese, the Spaniards, the, the Dutch, the German, the uh, the uh, 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 British, and the Americans, we all maintained this global dominance because of Euroasia. And if you look at history again, how they lost uh, the, the Brits, the Germans, the Brits, the, Brit, the uh, not the Germans, the Portuguese, the Dutch, the Spaniards and the Brits, why they lost this global dominance? Because they lost Eurasia. So Eurasia is your key to how now Russia and China are realizing if they can combine their strength together and ensure that the U.S. is out of Eurasia, that's the new global order that the West is going to be dealing
0: with. And I remember, I, I want to say it was the late seventies. The Trilateral Commission was uh, had had put out these Trilateral reports that they were trying to break the world up into three uh, three segments, and that now seems to to be falling on its face. H- hence George
2: Bush's New World Order. Let me throw this in: the most powerful military, really. I mean, if we don't go say talk about nuclear uh, nu- nuclear in the Middle East is. Iran. In China, I mean in Asia, is China. In Eur- Eurasian, Europe area is um, Russia. I mean, that's th- those are like the three heads there. And now Pakistan and India seem to be joining in, which is an interesting pair. Your thoughts. We've got about a, a couple of minutes.
3: Well, that is the reason why India was smart enough to realize, no, 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 no. I am not going to uh, uh, rupture my relations with Russia. The same thing China did. I am not going to rupture my relations with, with Russia. Why? Because they're seeing that euro asia that coordination there in that geographical area is where the key to the new global order
0: dr david walalu as always thank you so much for your time greatly appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back
3: as always guys
0: thank you folks you're listening to the critical hour on radio sputnik i'm wilmer leon i'm joined here by my co-host garland nixon there's more on the other side stay tuned We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. North Korea, for the first time since 2017, tested what is suspected to have been an intercontinental ballistic missile, according to South Korean and Japanese officials, raising new alarms about its ability to strike the United States. What does this mean, and why does it matter? Well, for Insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So your thoughts on this test, Uh, how concerned should people be, and uh, what does this mean going forward? What signal is North Korea sending?
4: Well, I think North Korea is sending a signal to the incoming South Korean government that they will not tolerate further aggression or threats. Now, just to go back, remember, South Korea has elected a new president. His name is Yoon or Yoon Uh He ran on the platform of Uh, doing a preemptive strike on North Korea and uh, stationing tactical nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula. So the North Koreans are preempting, sending a message. And the thing to note is that they haven't done missile tests in quite a while, but they've done about, if I'm not mistaken, uh, about a dozen of them this year. Uh, And this one, in comparison to the Uh, ICBM that was launched in 2017 traveled 2,600 kilometers altitude and 1,080 kilometers uh, uh, distance. And so that's about 30, 35 percent more than the 2017 ICBM test. And that one was considered to be able to reach Washington, D.C. So they're sending a strong message. Please Do not mess with us. You know, for many, many years, we have voluntarily abstained from doing any tests. But now that you have just recently raised the threat level uh, we want to send a counter message to that
2: what is um, if uh, uh, you know I know uh, North Korea has a small I believe uh, they have a, a larger border with China but I think they also have a small border with Russia I've seen that recently some uh, articles saying that Russia's uh, relationship has actually been somewhat strengthening with North Korea what is North Korea's relationship with Russia and China and how do you see that do you see that changing for the good Good or bad. I mean, you know, stronger, getting stronger, or weakening anytime in the future based on what's happening with Ukraine, et cetera.
4: Yes. Uh, North Korea has uh, a very short border, but, um, you know, a, uh, an important border with North Korea. It's about 17 kilometers, about, you know, 11 miles. Uh, and it also has a little bit of a maritime border. But it's a very, very important uh, border, and it's also historically important because Russia uh, and North Korea, or the USSR and North Korea, have been on very, very close terms for you know, for most of the period of the existence of the USSR. And uh, in 2013, they actually did go along with uh, UN sanctions against North Korea and again 2016. But now they are, uh, it looks to be like they're, they're uh, backing down on that. Certainly, North Korea supported Russia. It voted against the United Nations resolution on the Ukraine uh, at the General Assembly. Uh, and so Russia is probably reaching back out to North Korea. There's ample space, ample history, ample relations for them to uh, you know, strengthen their relations. And uh, a few years back, Kim Jong-un actually made a personal trip uh, to uh, To Russia and met with Putin.
0: This is an Axios story that, that we're discussing, and it says that, as you mentioned, this is North Korea's 11th missile launch this year. Uh, Kim Jong-un imposed a moratorium on ICBM and nuclear tests to pursue diplomacy with former President Trump. That, to me, is a very important statement showing that diplomacy can work. And not only is it not an accident that this missile launch is taking place after the south korean elections but it's also taking place as joe biden is in brussels trying to deal with the ukrainian issue and had joe biden used diplomacy more than economic warfare that issue could have been avoided. So to me, this really highlights you stop talking and you start fighting. Exactly, yes. I mean,
4: North Korea, once again, I want to emphasize the fact that these were this was a voluntary moratorium. You know, North Korea could could have fired uh, missiles all day long. And let's not forget that North Korea is a technologically advanced state. It's actually, in some areas, it's more advanced than South Korea, for example, in satellites. And so it voluntarily suspended its testing uh, and launching. And this was because it was interested in the overtures that the U.S. had made during the Trump administration. Now, all of that was sabotaged by John Bolton and others around Trump. And so we're back to square one, which is uh, CVID. This is the Libya model, which Biden seems to have uh, embraced. Essentially, it's a mixture of uh, strategic patience, i.e. Uh, not doing anything and hoping that sanctions will destroy North Korea and demanding CVID that they uh, uh, unilaterally disarm and surrender before anything can be discussed. That's not going to work. So the North Koreans are aware of that. They're trying to uh, raise the temperature a little bit, trying to bring uh, the other parties to the table. And they're also sending a message to uh, South Korea, to the incoming administration, and also indirectly to the United States. You know, you need to curb your vicious and uh, out uh, unhinged, uh, you know, attack dog, which uh, Yoon uh, is clearly uh, acting as. Uh, and, and this is the mess that they hope will be taken up. They're open for diplomacy. They will meet the United States at any time. But the sad track record is that every agreement the United States has signed with North Korea has been abrogated by the United States, it's been abrogated and sabotaged, uh, usually immediately after signature.
2: You know, my understanding is North Korea has a lot of um, natural resources that are of great value. Uh, as we see um, countries moving away from the SWIFT system, as we see countries now um, uh, 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 starting to trade in their in local currencies, and uh, Venezuela, I just read now they're going to the instead of the Visa and Mastercard, which they can't use, they're going to russia's mirror card i mean we're seeing a new we'll see we 're seeing an alternative um economic system arise that countries who are that allows countries to get around these um uh um uh, sanctions. Do you see this new kind of world arising? Do you see North Korea being able to be a part of that? Or are the UN sanctions too stiff? What do you think about that?
0: And China has a card as well.
2: Yes. Uh, a union pay, I believe, that is that Russia's using. So do you see um, a possibility for integration into these new systems with North Korea?
0: You
4: know, I think that's very possible. And I think we just kind of have to look at the history for a little while. North Korea is full of surprises and most people have no good understanding of North Korea as i said it's a technologically advanced state we could say that it's probably the world's poorest advanced country as opposed to the united states which is probably the world's richest failed state but you know the leadership kim jong un he's a physicist he's not a useless and decadent playboy he actually studied physics and he was uh, according to reports he was very good at that north korea has outlasted the ussr it is the longest existing communist state uh, in the world and you know without making exaggerations i would refer to it uh, as the original wakanda you know it's a secret state with powerful secret weapons and they were actually the first country in the world to recognize the black Panther Party as the legal representatives of the U.S. people. And this is the reason why Kathleen Cleaver's uh, daughter. Is named has a Korean name. Her name is Choju yong Young Hee. She gave birth to her daughter in North Korea, and she praised North Korea's you know maternity and childcare system, you know, uh, to the skies. So there's an entire history that has been occluded. But yes, North Korea until 1979 was richer than South Korea. If it joins up with China, uh, with Russia, and if the current pressures that are forcing uh, you know the non- western countries to align with each other. If they decide to build a systemic uh, new system, including a new financial system, North Korea will play an important part of that. Originally, the plan was for North Korea to be part of the Belt and Road. There would be two streams of a railway track that would go all the way down into South Korea, and that would have essentially consolidated Northeast Asia into um, a kind of... Uh, uh, China-Korea block that would have been impervious to uh, undermining. But I, I think that North Korea can still play an important role, not simply because of its resources, but because it has technology, capacity, and above all, it has resilience and
0: resolve. In fact, let me ask Garland's question another way. Is what you just articulated why, or one of the reasons why, the United States and other countries uh, are are so um, <clears throat> opposed to the uh, acceptance of North Korea into, the geopolitical landscape because of their technological advancement we don't want competition in the market that's possible i mean north
4: korea is uh, as i said to you know to clarify it is more advanced than south korea for example in satellite technology mm-hmm. uh, it's not a, a, across the board a technological power supply.
0: no but you but see you're saying that you're saying that if you can if you are advanced in satellites you can damn sure make cars and if you can, you can go make with no
2: money, you can imagine make televisions. if you had some money. <laughs> yeah, if you, yeah. If, you,
0: if, if you can make – if you're advanced in satellite technology, you can make televisions, you can make radios, and you can make computers.
4: Yes, and they do. They make their own computers. They make their own cell phones. They have their own internet. You know, they're not a, a failed backward state. So yes, absolutely. If North Korea allies, it has uh, industrial capacity, technological capacity, a very, very good educational system.
0: And natural resources.
4: natural, Natural resources, absolutely.
2: And and and, and to, to add to that, if you add them and their abilities to that Eurasian bloc with Russia and India and China, and you have another group of scientists and physicists and people that can do things electronically that can make up for what the West cuts them out of, now they build and you add a, a new labor force. I mean, it it turns it, – it, I just see a potential for the Eurasian block and to they, grow incredibly. And they control it themselves. They are
0: not under the control of Westerners. Western dominance and economics we got about one that's minute. A, that's, a rogue, that's a rogue element you can't control.
4: Yes, exactly. I mean, this is what the U.S. refers to as the 2 plus 3 formulation. These are what they see as the official enemies of the U.S.-led capitalist order. Uh, the two are Russia and China. These are the revisionist powers. And then you have uh, what they call the three. These are the three minor threats, but they uh, consist of Iran, North Korea, and you know non-state actors. But this is how the U.S. in visions the world as threats, existential threats to the U.S. order. And yes, if they collaborate and coordinate, which the U.S. is actually accelerating through its pressures, then it will pose a direct threat to the U.S.-led order.
0: KJ no, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Asia Times had a piece in December entitled, Putin-G, running circles around Biden's hybrid war. Washington hawks float expelling Russia from SWIFT, but Moscow's budding geo-economic alliance with Beijing will keep the money flowing. We thought it would be interesting to revisit this piece and see how this is shaking out four months later. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moores Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, Gerald, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So in December, the piece opened with Xi Jinping and Putin spent an hour and 14 minutes in a video conversation. uh, Geopolitically saving the way for 2022, and this is the one that really matters much more than Putin-Biden a week ago, or at the time that this was written. Uh, The New York Times had a piece on the 5th of this month, Why Sanctions on Russia Will Backfire. The American government tends to see sanctions against Russia as a low-cost policy that will eventually force Putin to change course in Ukraine. Wanted to get your thoughts on... The, the direction that China and Russia were charting for themselves in December, looking at where we are now, especially since, according to TASS and other sources, Russia is now to sell gas globally in rubles for the 45 unfriendly countries on Russia's list.
5: Well, that is an intriguing story, is it not? Because what that means is that the ruble, which some thought had been in free fall, speaking of the Russian currency, in free fall since February 24, 2022, now in a kind of judo-like maneuver, which is appropriate given uh, President Putin's expertise in that field, they're basically getting their antagonists to help them. It reminds me of, what I wrote about in my boxing book about Jack Johnson, the heavyweight champion of more than a century ago, where he would basically enlist his opponents on his behalf. In other words, turning their energy against them. And that is just one more sign that on the strategic level, the U.S.-led NATO crusade against Russia is Enduring a rocky road. I think that helps to explain the impromptu trip to Brussels and then Warsaw, presumably, perhaps even to the battlefield itself, by President Biden. Interestingly enough, uh, just a day or two ago, the New York Times raised questions about this trip, pointing out that usually when you bring the U.S. president to a summit such as this one, you have him basically there to preside over a pre-cooked agenda. But that is not the case with regard to Brussels, and some observers might think that it's indicative of the fact that the U.S.-led crusade is not going as smoothly as some pundits would have us believe. And certainly the import of that article by Pepe Escobar, who you cite, is still relevant, because as long as China stands by Moscow, it's going to be very difficult for this crusade to gain traction. And in that regard, let me point you to another article in the Asia Times that just appeared a day or so ago by a former Indian diplomat who writes regularly for that site, who points out, something that many of our listeners, I'm sure, already know, uh, which is that the only uh, full-throated endorsement uh, for sanctions against Moscow are coming from the North Atlantic countries themselves, that is to say, those who are leading the crusade. Now, that uh, should not be sniffed at. It's been a remarkable uh, scheme of pan-European unity. Uh, even sweeping within its ambit, uh, Switzerland, which, threw overboard, is decades, if not centuries, of neutrality. But not a single African country, for example, has endorsed the sanctions regime. You have the Malaysian foreign minister just in Vietnam, and both of them turned thumbs down on the sanctions regime. Just yesterday, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation had a summit, Which was addressed by Wang Yi, the leading Chinese diplomat, and the sanctions regime basically received a lukewarm reception. And that is indicative of the fact that uh, in South Asia, in particular, particularly the giant that is India, uh, they too are standing by Moscow. And I'm sure your audience knows about. The fact that India is buying Russian energy on the cheap, which Washington has turned its back on, and that the trade will take place with regard to the Indian rupee and the Russian ruble. Uh, This is further evidence of this uh, stampede towards de-dollarization, which along with the ascendancy of China and the rearming of Germany might be the most important aspects of this entire escapade. However, there are some further hurdles to surmount. In the Wall Street Journal today, the disgraced former British Prime Minister David Cameron, whom you may recall, ushered in the debacle that is Brexit by holding the referendum that Ultimately, led to the election of the clown prince himself, Boris Johnson, is beating the drum with regard to the G20 meeting, the group of 20 meeting of the 20 most significant uh, economies that has supplanted the G7, which was the North Atlantic bloc plus Japan. Their meeting in Bali, Indonesia, in a few months. Mr. Cameron is calling for a boycott of that meeting. If uh, the president of Russia shows up, uh, that'll be an early test with regard to this trend that I've just outlined. Uh, Certainly, you can expect the North Atlantic countries uh, to turn their back on the Bali G20 summit if President Putin arrives. But it'll be interesting to see how Nigeria and Saudi Arabia and China and India and South Africa – uh, react now. Indonesia has already said that it's not on board with regard to the boycotting of their own summit, and there is another disturbing tendency, uh, which also reflects the ratcheting up of tensions, and that is the determination or the assessment, as they say in the State Department, that Russia has committed war crimes uh, in Ukraine. Now, what's interesting about that is that the United States had opposed sanctions itself on the International Criminal Court in the Hague is not a signatory to the document uh, giving authorization to the ICC, and yet, uh, supposedly, they're going to try to use the ICC to ratchet up tensions, and once again, this is evidence of the fact, it seems to me, that uh, just like in Libya in 2011, uh, the United States is not... Seeking just uh, a, a, a sort of an imposition of a certain kind of human rights uh, in Ukraine, it's going for regime change in Moscow, and the problem there is is that the United States, in recent decades, has been at war with relatively small countries, uh, be it uh, the former Yugoslavia, which it bombed in the 1990s, or Libya, a country of seven million population in 2011, or. Iraq, two thousand three, population of about two dozen million, and Afghanistan, of course, with population about forty plus million, and Russia—you're talking about the giant of the European continent, a nuclear power—and ex- executing regime change is is quite ominous and quite dangerous uh, when it comes to this country, and certainly, I think that it calls for a calm reassessment in Washington. Uh, which apparently the hotheads there are not interested in. And speaking of the hotheads, I'd be remiss if I failed to mention the passing from the scene of Madeleine Albright, the first woman Secretary of State. Now, I mention her in this context because she had roots, as you know, in what is now the Czech Republic. And there has been this remarkable tendency of Washington, the State Department, to rely upon these immigrants from Eastern Europe, be it Zbigniew Brzezinski of Poland and Henry kensinger of Germany, to execute what oftentimes turns into a Russophobic uh, foreign policy. And uh, perhaps the confluence of Mr. Biden taking off to try to rescue his frazzled, tattered Russia policy just yesterday and the simultaneous passing from the scene Madeline Albright will call once again for a calm and sober reassessment of the fundamentals of U.S. foreign policy.
2: You know, to 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 go back to your your martial arts um, uh, metaphor. Uh, uh, also, if if we consider the martial this this economic f- battle of fight, the martial artist will go for the weak points: the eyes, the throat, the fingers, the groin, things of that nature. It seems to me that the weak point in the US's coalition is the um the the the, the uh European Union and their need for gas. So you give them a week. You got one week to decide. If that's what Russia's done, either you're going to stop getting gas, which is not an option, or you're going to stab Joe Biden's sanctions in the back and start paying us for, um, start paying us in rubles. And don't cry about we're breaking any contracts. They're saying you're breaking the contracts because I got my money in your bank and you won't give it to me. So I don't want to hear it. It seems to me they're going after the weak part of the coalition to break that up. And it seems like I, I mean strategic. strategically. Strategically, a brilliant checkmate. Your thoughts?
5: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Germany in that context, because even the New York Times referred just recently to Germany as being the weak link with regard to this chain of war emanating from Washington. But I should also point out another point that's in the headline that's going to raise sharp contradictions here at home. Uh, The Biden regime has just announced that there will be 100,000 Ukrainians admitted to the United States. Now, this is curious, is it not, in light of the depredations inflicted on Haitians on the Texans-Mexico border by U.S. authorities, the cold shoulder that has been directed towards others from the global south who have tried to enter uh, this country. Now, obviously and certainly I'm not anti-refugee, I'm certainly not anti-immigrant, but I am anti-white supremacy. And this stinks to high heaven. Uh, I will be very disappointed if the Congressional Black Caucus does not raise a ruckus about this. I'll be even more disappointed if, if the NAACP does not join them, because this is
0: outrageous. It's scandalous. You're gonna be a you're gonna be a disappointed man. <laughs> <laughs> you might as well you might as well get your disappointment started now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead, Gerald. Well, no, I mean... <laughs> we got 45 seconds. Go ahead.
5: Well, at least it should come from the base. Now, the, the leaders, uh, perhaps not, but uh, the oakland berkeley community, which sends Congresswoman Barbara Lee to Congress and depends upon her to be a kind of peacenik, uh, certainly should be raising a ruckus about this, as well as the constituency in Washington, D.C., that uh, helps to pay the salary for Eleanor Holmes Norton.
0: We will see. I think you're on your way to being a very disappointed man. Dr. Gerald Horn. as always, sir, even in your disappointment, we greatly appreciate your analysis and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There are a few breaking stories in the Middle East. Syrian deputy foreign minister says Syria is not neutral and is siding with Russia in the Ukraine conflict, while Israel's foreign minister says that Israel is afraid that Russia will shoot down Israeli jets flying over Syria. What does all of this mean? mean, are tensions heightening in the region? For Insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Amazing to be with you guys. So let's go ahead and and start with um, the deputy foreign minister saying that Syria is not neutral in this conflict. That, uh, uh, That does not surprise me, but... It's interesting that now that line is being drawn and being drawn now, particularly as Joe Biden is in Brussels. Oh yeah, and uh,
6: he didn't only say that they're not neutral in Ukraine; he said that they are siding with Russia fully in their battle against the NATO and the United States because these countries harmed Syria and because Russian and Uh, Syrian soldiers' blood was mixed in the battlefield uh, in that uh, war in Syria. So it's a clear announcement of affinity and understanding of the broader lines uh, that are playing out in this uh, war in Ukraine and its uh, immediate uh, connection to uh, the situation in Syria. And of course, the Ambassador of Russia, a few hours after the statement by uh, the Deputy Foreign Minister of Syria, Ambassador of Russia in Damascus uh, came out and spoke specifically about the uh, reoccurring Israeli attacks on Syria and uh, said that uh, they are watching closely, that the uh, attacks by Israel are basically poking at them to have a response that will open the door for the Americans and their allies to have military um, activities in Syria. So basically, what he hinted to is that Israel is trying to drag Russia into a confrontation in Syria in order to uh, have the Americans uh, use Syria as an engagement uh, for the battle against Russia. and. As you noted, within half an hour of that, the foreign affairs minister of uh, the Zionist colony, uh, Lapid, came out in a statement that is uh, saying that they're worried and scared that uh, Russia will shoot down their fighter jets uh, when they conduct their activities and attacks on Syria. So this is very serious. It tells you that um, what we saw in the last few weeks of uh, meetings uh, between the Syrians and the Emir- Emirates and and, what, and the meetings between the Zionists, the Egyptians and the Emiratis uh, that followed the day after. it's all connected to the bold moves that are expected from the axis of resistance against uh, Israel in the next few days.
2: You know, when you add in um, the Iranians' uh, response in uh, in Erbil to uh, to to Israeli attacks, it sounds to me it's kind of similar to Ukraine in that it sounds like in that part of the world people are saying no more. We're not going to accept Israel simply attacking, be it Ukraine or excuse me, Syria or Iraq. That basically willy nilly, um, Israel feeling we can launch military attacks on any country. We the way we want at any time and not expect reprisals. It sounds like the the countries of that and the, the, the entities in that area are coming together and saying, we're not going to, we're not going to have that anymore.
6: Yeah, definitely. And you see what uh, what's what's really weird is that the way that these Zionists speak, uh, the way they boast and about their attacks and their abilities. Not even the Americans speak that way when they're talking about Iran. So it's uh, very soon now somebody is going to have to teach the Zionists a lesson that's going to put them in their place. They cannot act as if they are a superpower, uh, specifically right now with the huge developments that we saw in the region in the axis of resistance uh, with the leadership of Iran. And the prolification of the technology of um, drones and guided missiles—that this—it's a checkmate already. It's in the next uh, few weeks and the next few years. It's just about the Zionists realizing that the end of the colony is is nigh and uh, figuring out how they're going to pack up.
0: Israel is saying that they're concerned that Russia will shoot down some of their jet fighters as they. Uh, engage in their sorties over Syria, well, then stop flying over Syria. Stop invading the Syrian sovereign airspace and your jets will probably be a whole lot safer. But all of that sounds, and to your point, that Israel as America's proxy is trying to carve out or create another front for Russia trying to bait Russia into attack. So now Russia will be engaged in Ukraine. Russia will be engaged over Syria. Uh, The United States really seems to be hell-bent on proxy conflicts With Russia,
2: if I could give another possibility, I'll throw another possibility. Only for this reason, Israel has very good relations with with, with Russia, and they have refused to go along with the sanctions. And they have strong connections to Russia in a lot of ways. What if this? Israel doesn't want to say embarrassingly to their population, "Hey." You know what, we got to stop because, you know, the local maybe Syria or Iran or whatever, we don't want to deal with the reprisals. So it's easier for them to say, yeah, we don't want to get that shot down by Russia rather than get embarrassed and say, well, we don't want to do You know, th- those are all just on another possibility May. only because they have very positive relationship yeah. with Russia. So they solve the problem, solve the riddle.
6: Yeah, no, you see, look, uh, Syria is a, a unique battlefield, it is the only. Place in the world right now where the American and are both on the same territory, uh, fully armed, and it's a living conflict zone. So up until now, even though it's clear that the Syrian um, military could retake all of the northeast uh, because it's uh, just you know planes that are with with not much topography to defend it. That would mean confrontation with the Americans, and uh, of course, then the calculation comes with Russia that it tells the Syrian military do not attack right now. We need to figure out an ex, you know, an exit for the American troops without a confrontation. So, what in the situation that the Israelis drag somehow the Russians into a confrontation with them? Then this will give an excuse to the Americans, even though that the Syrian military is not attacking the Americans directly, to engage the Syrian military. So uh, what does this mean? I think the statement from the foreign affairs minister of the Zionist colony is an exaggeration because they're trying to drag Russia into the battle. What we will see and is a response in the next few days is an attack by the Syrian military and the Iranian military on uh, Zionist uh, positions, not the Russians. The Russians will not engage. And and what does this mean? That means that the uh, Israelis will be put in a situation where they have to engage only the Syrian military and the Iranian military, which they cannot do. They need the Americans in the battle. So, this is why the Uh, Russian um, ambassador was pointing to the trap that the Israelis were attempting
0: right now to do podcaster Richard Medhurst has a piece that uh, I'll entitle no permanent friends no permanent enemies just permanent interests or as Henry Kissinger said to be an enemy of America can be dangerous to but to be a friend is fatal and he he's an analyzing a speech given by Syrian president Assad And this is the premise of his speech. He's focusing on why the U.S. is backing Nazis in Ukraine and the U.S. has backed al-Qaeda in Syria. Uh, Leith Marouf.
6: Yeah, definitely. Many in the West, I think, live in this fantasy that they were the good guys in World War II, that they actually fought the Nazis, when in reality it was the Soviets that fought the Nazis and sacrificed 27 million of their people to to end the fascism and the Americans and NATO and the West absorbed the Nazis after the war and continued to um, you know act exactly like the Nazis in Africa in Latin America in Asia with the genocide and the the, the wars against the decolonization stage it was that nothing ended for the world in terms of nazism only the pretending inside the West that they got rid of Nazism. And now, uh, you know, we're back to that open support for Nazism. And remember, between those two uh, events of shunning Nazism and reabsorbing, you know, platforming it in the West was the creation of the myth that the Holocaust was a unique. A genocide, that it stands out of history, so never mind the millions, that hundreds of millions that died in Africa and, and the Americas and Asia uh, under the boots of, of Western colonialism. And that the, uh, you know, Zionism is, which is Jewish white supremacy and colonialism, is the answer to that, justifying that, and we saw what happened in Palestine. And now, after making this fake reality, and it's uh, revealed to us back again, that NATO is basically replacing both the German and the Japanese empires, uh, and fascism is as if World War II never ended.
2: And I think what's going on here, because I'm seeing more so than ever, the coverage on of of, of the issue of Nazis, I mean, at least on social media and an alternative media. This is exposing that the U.S. government and, you know, a lot of Americans are gas to find this out, that the U.S. government will choose any friend, no matter how evil to um, to to to, to really achieve. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, your thoughts. We've got about a minute.
6: Oh yeah, oh yeah, and I mean, there's really it's it's they're not choosing something that is unfamiliar to them. What happened to the indigenous people? What happened to the African diaspora inside the United States? What happened to uh, the, the Americas? The Filipinos? The ed- list is endless. Mm-hmm. It's not that uh, it uh, you know fascism is actually you know capitalism. That's what it is and imperialism in the name of Western supremacy. And we see it being displayed right now with all the Ukrainian refugees' um, stories, how they're treated differently. I mean, uh, everything is in the open.
0: Laith Maroof, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The American Committee for U.S.-Russia Accord has published a piece entitled, The West Needs to Rethink Its Approach in Ukraine. It opens as follows. The West's approach to achieving peace in Ukraine has focused on Russia's role while ignoring domestic factors because this is consistent with the broader U.S. policy of portraying Russia as a destabilized Factor in world affairs. It is also in keeping with the dominant approach to international relations, realism, which sees domestic actors as irrelevant when considering a nation's foreign policy. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, specializing in Ukraine and Russia, and the author of this piece, Professor Nikolai Petro. Welcome back. Uh- Nice to be back with you. And you continue, this view is a myth left over from the 1950s, the golden era of U.S. foreign policy when Senator Arthur Vandenberg, the chairman of the Foreign Senate Relations Committee, famously put it, politics stops at the water's edge. Your thoughts, Professor Petro?
7: Well, uh, thanks for for. Dredging up this piece <laughs> because it uh, it was published in 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 happier days uh in may uh, of last year when I was actually in Ukraine <laughs> writing this and thinking about uh, uh, these things so um, <clears throat> well uh, in a nutshell uh unfortunately My suggestions to move toward some sort of um, joint uh, resolution of uh, Ukraine that would involve really rethinking uh, all of our approach to uh, the security of Europe uh, since the end of the Cold War um, wasn't uh, met with a great Uh, deal of interest, and as a result, I think we have the situation that uh, we are seeing today. Uh, There was a long interview uh, that um, the foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, gave quite recently, and uh, he points out that uh, how important actually not Ukraine is in this, but Uh, actually uh, the attitude of the West to what he deems, what he calls uh, Russian security concerns and how these have been systematically ignored. And um, I think if we had paid attention to those at an earlier time and really thought in different terms about Russia, about how to include it in a Mutual security arrangement that would have been acceptable to all.
2: Well, none of this would have happened. So let me ask you this: Your comments about you know and your the thoughts of working on a mutual uh, um, security arrangement are applicable if you're looking at this through the prism through in the context of. The security of, um, of, of of Europe and keeping peace in Europe, but if you're looking at through at through the context, and Joe Biden made a, a statement the other day where he said, "There's a new world order that must be led by the United States." If you're viewing this through the context of US power hegemony, i.e. the uh Wolfowitz doctrine, then it doesn't matter if this makes Europe less secure because there's a you've got a there's bigger fish to fry here. And it appears to me that we're looking at the latter ish context rather than the former. Your thoughts? No,
7: it does matter. It does matter to the United States because we cannot rule the world by ourselves. We need, uh, at the very least, uh, the um, acknowledgement or, let's say, the, the, the willingness of uh, Europeans to follow us. Um, And even that, I think, is problematic these days. But we have the the bigger picture that we have to be concerned about is that the world of potential allies for an American-led global order, or or as we call it, a a rules-based order, is rapidly shrinking. I was reading um, some comments by uh, Indian ambassador, uh Bhadra Kumar uh who says who points out that not a single uh african or major uh, asian uh country has um in uh, has joined with the us policy on sanctions um now that's not an endorsement they're not endorsing the russian invasion but they're looking At this, as a regional conflict, they don't want to get involved, and they do blame the United States for adding fuel to the fire of this conflict and prolonging it. They see it as a way to uh, undermine Russia, one of the world's largest uh, economies, and they say, well, if Russia can be made to fold under this pressure, then there's nothing to stop the United States and its allies from doing the same thing to us.
0: You said in following on Garland's point, if the U.S. had looked at this through a different prism, we would be in a different place. With the passing of Madeleine Albright, a Brzezinski acolyte, Hillary Clinton, an Albright Acolyte. I want to say Barack Obama was discovered by Brzezinski at Columbia. When we look at the State Department and U.S. policy, particularly as it relates to Russia, it is dominated by russophobes So uh, your thoughts there. And we can't look at this through a different prism because of the biases that are permeating American policy.
7: Yes. I I concur with everything you've said and I wrote a piece on that very issue called Are We Reading Russia Right which was published by the Fletcher Forum in 2018 but this is not uh there's there's no simple solution to this problem it's a it's it's my fault. <laughs> it's the problem of, of professors, uh, people like us, who haven't uh, done really enough to broaden the views of uh, the people that we train. And the people we train become diplomats and journalists and writers and, and people in all walks of life. And we haven't been able to teach really compassion for for those whom we disagree with, we we tend to compartmentalize uh, people uh, people's who disagree with us as as foreigners and aliens, and and not to reach out and see all the things that uh, that connect us and that bind us, and in a I hate to put it in this, these simplistic terms, but in a shrinking world with uh, in which we are, in fact, uh, interdependent, if these sanctions show us anything uh, that we're, we're trying to use to, to turn the Russian economy into rubble, um, they will show us how interconnected we are as a world. And at some point, we have to say, uh, okay, given that we're all linked uh, at the hip, um, do we really all want to drown <laughs> or do we all want to to
0: swim? <laughs> let me let me push back a bit on your blaming professors such as yourself and myself, because I think you would agree with this, the the, the landscape in academia for progressive thought is shrinking dramatically and it's because of people like I can't remember her name Dick Cheney's wife and her little crew of 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 assassins that had been going from college to college getting professors fired for being too liberal I remember teaching at Howard during the uh U.S. invasion of Iraq and having people standing outside of my classroom door taking notes on my lectures as I was trying to explain to my students why this was not a good idea. So uh, it, it's very hard to to uh, to hold that ground.
7: I hear you, and and I certainly sympathize, but I do blame uh, professors more than other groups in society, and I'll tell you why. Because we are a protected caste. I, now, I'm talking about... Uh, You're talking about tenured, professors, tenured
6: like professors, right. I'm
7: talking about people like myself, which is not everybody in academia, but who has um, someone like myself, who has a senior position, who is tenured, who who has the... We, we are in a rare position mm-hmm. to tell people what we think, and I think, therefore, unlike any other group in American society, and I've never said this publicly b- before, I've only complain to my colleagues about (laughs) it. But uh, I think we do have an obligation to to stand up and speak our minds, whatever that opinion may be, uh, not to foist it on people, but if asked to tell the the honest truth mm-hmm. uh, because we are the only ones in American society who can do so from a, rela- a position of relative security.
2: I will ask you this, um, and it's a big piece of bit of news, and that is in that the, the U.S., you know, if it was a small country, they used military might. In this instance, there, it, there appears to be an information war, but more importantly, an economic battle here, and uh, the Russians just made what I think a, a powerful uh, a move in demanding that Germany pay for their gas in rubles or get no gas, and they gave them one week to make the decision. What are your thoughts on that and how that affects this? I, I wish I could predict <laughs> the outcome of
7: this because I really, th- this seems to be such an innovative and bold move that I don't know what all, what the how the international community will respond. Um, if 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 stock market signals are any indication, then the fact that the ruble has strengthened by a third compared to foreign currencies suggests that uh, the some markets, at least, uh, see this as a, as a powerful move and one that Russia is likely to win. But I I can't predict because I'm too ignorant of, of global economics on that matter.
2: You know, they, they put them in a, in a catch-22 situation. If they say no, which they can't, they run out of gas and electricity and everything, and they go back to the Stone Ages. If they say yes, which they can't, <laughs> then they completely undermine the sanctions and they, in that, and, and they destroy the, the, the whole uh, sanctions regime. You've hit on an important aspect of this str-
7: struggle, which I, th- I believe I, uh, uh, in the interview I mentioned uh, by Sergei Lavrov. Uh, this is a twilight struggle for the survival of Russia as an independent state. That's how he.
3: Uh... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
7: In this struggle, um, we uh, Russia is fighting against the West. Um, Through uh, presumably this proxy war, as as Lavrov sees it, in Ukraine, the more direct attacks are in the economic sphere, which is why Russia seeks to win this battle as well. In other words, to discredit the very use of sanctions in international affairs. It's become a routine. Uh, instrument of U.S. foreign policy, uh, reluctantly used by other nations. But it can only be used with impunity by people who don't suffer the consequences. As soon as Russia or any other country decides to make those consequences felt, well, we 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 will begin to have economic casualties. And those economic casualties will eventually be human casualties and we'll begin to feel the effects of this economic war as a real war.
0: Professor Nikolai Petro, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's an interesting piece in Consortium News entitled, UK Was Worried Assange Would Mar Its Media Freedom Event. Worried about a backlash over Julian Assange during its lavish 2019 Media Freedom Event, emails show the Foreign Office in Britain monitored activity online, developed lines to take, and warned, We should be ready, reports Jim McAvoy. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of The Battle of Ukraine and the War It's Part of, Jim Kavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So in uh, July of 2019, the UK co-hosted a global conference for, of all things, media freedom, a first-of-its-kind event where 50 countries gathered to form a media freedom coalition costing 2.4 million pounds. The event was hailed as a major milestone in the U.K. government's campaign to protect journalists doing their job. The hosting of a media freedom event, Within miles of Belmarsh Prison in southeast London, where Julian Assange is being and was then illegally detained, was seen as a public relations problem. Jim Cavanaugh, this now being exposed, just adds to the intrigue. Yeah, you know, I'm
8: glad we're covering this. You know, Julian Assange got married yesterday to his uh, to Stella Maris in a ceremony where they wouldn't even allow a photographer to take a wedding picture. They wouldn't allow uh, witnesses and friends to attend. And uh, it was it, this situation with Julian Assange, you know, it's easy to put this on the back burner because, you know, imminent war is something that kind of uh, crowds other things out. But it's very important, and it's part of the same thing, the control over information, control over what we can know and how we get into war. So it's important to keep our minds on this and not to forget it. And, you know, seeing a story about this two, th- three years ago, which I wasn't, I don't know if I was aware if it happened, but, you know, and the idea that they think this could be a problem. Of course, it's a problem. You're going to have a media freedom event with about pr- promoting your support of media freedom around the world and try and avoid the issue of Julian Assange. You know, as one of the people here said uh, uh, from Reporters Without Borders, you know, this is. This is a truth that no communication strategy can make go away. Now, the problem of Julian Assange isn't a public relations problem. It's a substantive problem of the Western government's British government as a poodle of the American government crushing a reporter who has done nothing but published true data about American war crimes, essentially, and American war uh, uh, war making. So this is something in the present context we should be continuing to think about and Julian Assange was just denied the right of further appeal in Britain. So it's up to the British foreign minister now, whether he's going to be sent back to the United States, he probably will be. This is very embarrassing in a context, you know, they don't talk about this. They don't talk about what happens to the thousands of reporters who've been killed in Ukraine over the past eight years. (laughs) You know, that's disappeared. So this is, again, a part of the strategy of, of information control and narrative control that you know has been going on for ten years with Julian Assange.
2: You know the other thing I think, and and I, I take something positive of of, of Assange. You, you know, even though it's as terrible as is what's happening to him. You know, online the last four weeks. Um, kind of seeing what's happening on social media and, and the various, um, you know, YouTubes and rumbles and locals and all of those, I see a building, and it's fast, of the of information, of pushback against the narrative, of getting true information out. I see it's growing. It's not, and I mean exponentially. At first, there was little, and everybody was buying into the, you know, put your blue and yellow ribbon on and cheer for more war. But I see a huge audience of people who are hungry and thirsty, for um, truth and information, and pushback against the mainstream narrative, and I say it's Julian Assange and people like him that created this doubt in the mainstream narratives, and an understanding that people needed to um, to, 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 to be able to look for more information and that they could get it if they look. So even though they've captured Julian Assange right now and he's fighting for his freedom, I think his kind of legacy has created what we have today, and I think it's very good. Your thoughts?
8: Well, I think you're right. What, what you know, what they're afraid of is not just Julian Assange, but the platform he created. He used, the, you know, the technology for the progressive ends that everybody wanted it to be used for. We now can have an independent source of information. We can give an outlet for whistleblowers to confidently provide information that we wouldn't know otherwise. His whole thing, you know, wars are based on lies, and the truth can prevent wars. That's a very good slogan, and it's true. So what we have now is that's why they're, you know, the the the, the prosecution and persecution of Assange is one moment and one node in an offensive against using and opening the uh, the, the, uh, the 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 spout of information that the network that the internet provided and social media provided, but and they're closing they're trying to close that down and they have been for the past couple of years, but then other things open up, you know, Rumbles up, Rumble opens up instead of YouTube, you have Telegram channel, which has all the alternative channels on it now. It just becomes, it just, you, but they are making it harder. They're making people work harder to get to the information. And, you know, that's the best they can do, but it's something that's, that they can do, and it is important. And it, it creates, again, situations where you're going to have a certain segment of the population who's going to do that hard work and go to different channels and get information. And a, a, another large, vast majority of the population is going to because it's the only thing that comes up comes up on their channel, they're going to be stuck in the uh, the establishment narrative. So it, it's a it's a dangerous situation. It has all of the, uh, poss- the the progressive possibilities that it had, but those possibilities have to find new ways of of emerging and of establishing themselves and becoming reality. And that's a constant warfare now that we're we're all involved in.
0: John McAvoy uh, writes that since. Uh, 2019 that the UK has continued to use the Global Conference for Media Freedom as a vehicle through which to claim its supports press freedom but what the emails that he uncovered clearly uh, articulate and explain very similar to what the WikiLeaks emails explain this is all just a big front this is all just a lie and to a lot of what you just articulated the United States is playing the same game
8: oh yeah it's all public relations they've they've hired I think the mid press did an article about you know the public, all the public relations firms that have been hired to to work on the Ukraine narrative for them, you know, tons of them, and it's really public relations work, and it's a communications problem, and we don't communicate the message well enough. Well, you know, what is the message? What's the substance behind it? That all gets lost in this, and they think they can make it go away, and they can for some period. They can fool some of the people some of the time, and a lot of the people, most of the time. So that's that's the problem. But yeah, it is a, a it they. they the accurate and relevant information and, and dispassionate serious, not necessarily neutral, but good fair analysis has given way to public relations and, 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 and the shallowest kind of narrative comic book narrative constructions. And that's what, that's what we're in the middle of. And it's, it's, it's very hard thing, but we, that's what we have to kind of overcome. And, you know, we do our best on that. And, uh, 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 you know, it's it's just who believes this anymore? But you know, the, the problem, the other side of the problem is that well, nobody believes that when the UK puts on a freedom of media freedom issue, that, that this is a, they can be taken seriously. Nobody believes, you know, that Joe Biden can get up and decide who's a war criminal or not. You know, this is just absurd, and the hypocrisy and the and the. Uh, the, the Kind of nauseating. It is nauseating to people, and even most people who want to believe it know. Well, this is kind of you can't. You kind of get squeamish and hearing it. So the narratives are out there, but they're becoming as as uh, Growing says. You can see too many things now, and they they, they leak in even to the mainstream uh, channels. So it's hard to hide everything, and people become less satisfied and and. Be, it, it, you have an immediate reaction of skepticism. And what are you talking about? You're, you're in favor of media freedom. What about Julian Assange? You know, what are you talking about? Putin's a world criminal. What about you know, Iraq and Libya and Syria? You know, so you can't, it's not that easy to get away with these things.
2: Uh, You know, and here's a perfect example. Um, Joe Lauria has a great article in Consortium News, Pentagon Drops Truth Bombs to Stave Off War with Russia. It's a great article, and they bring out that there are a couple of people from the Pentagon kind of dropping some inside information saying, A, we got no information that Russia is going to do anything related to biological chemical warfare. And then in the rest of it, they actually push back against some of the main tropes being put forward by the mainstream media, and they say the way the Russians are conducting the war. It looks like they want to leave themselves some openings for diplomacy, etc. Your thoughts on that article?
6: Yeah,
8: that's, that was a very good article. And, you know, I'm just astounded. I, really, you know, I caught half an hour or so yesterday of CNN, MSNBC, and, and I watched, you know, the, the media, the White House press conference. The level of warmongering in the American media now is just hard to believe. They're pushing for World War Three. And they're accepting this notion, oh, the Russians are about to mount a false flag or chemical attack. You know, this is crazy. There's no, and as the Pentagon itself says, there's no evidence of this. But the media keeps pushing it. And, you know, the, 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 the narrative of what's, what's happening and what, what, what the Russians are doing and the Ukrainian army is doing in, in, in this conflict, you know, and who's just devastating the civilian population. You know, even the Pentagon is saying no. That's not what's going on. A, hey, the Russians aren't losing the way you presented. B, they've been actually very restrained in terms of their the destructive power against the civilian population. We did more airstrikes air in the first day of the Iraq War than they did. They've done it during the whole month. You know, don't forget, we bombed Yugoslavia for eight, seventy-eight days. <laughs> you know, so so this is and that was devastating. So you know, this is getting. Uh, but, but it, again, people have to look for these things. And even when they come from official sources, they're not the things that get promoted every day and amplified and repeated all the time. They get stuck on the third page or the tenth page, and they've forgotten for the. And it's very difficult. And it's because, you know, it is a war, and every, each side of this war is going to present the narrative that best suits them. And one or another may be and probably will be— actually more accurate than the than the other one, but you have to go and look at all the sources. You have to be skeptical of every report that comes out of this war. and But they have just, the, the American media and the Western media has just put itself on the side of the Kiev regime, and everything they say is reported as flat fact, and other things are not even, they just disappear. They're just not reported at all, and it's very frustrating, and it's leading us to war. It's a very dangerous situation.
0: We have just about a minute and a half left. What does it say to you when the State Department is the warmonger and the Department of Defense is leaking information to very uh, uh, respected mainstream sources such as Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report saying that the dominant administrative narrative is a lie?
8: Yeah, well, it's the neocons, you know. One hopes, and you know what what one sees here. At least I think we're seeing, and I hope we're seeing, is that the generals know what's going on. You know, the Pentagon people, professional military people, they can't afford to kid themselves that much about this. And they are the ones who are the most likely, in this, in our context, in the United States today, to be the ones that say, "No, we just can't go into World War Three. We don't. We just can't go into a war with Russia in Ukraine, in Eastern Europe. It's nuts." So. They're the one, but you have the foreign policy apparatus, State Department, Congress, that is dominated by these neocon ideologies and fantasies and and drives to reassert American exceptionalist supremacy and make sure that you know we control the world, we police the world, we, and that's. You know, so you have a split between this is really the neocons who've never gone away.
0: Jim Cavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Boston.com has a piece, Supreme Court hearings bring culture wars tears. It's not just Supreme Court nominee Judge Katanji Brown Jackson who's being scrutinized. Senators are also being watched at this milestone moment in history, considering the first African-American woman for the high court. What does all of this say? And what does it really s- reflect and say about us? For insight, we turn to our next guest. She's a professor emerita of law at Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego, California. Professor Marjorie Cohn, as always, welcome back.
9: Thanks for having me, Wilmer and Garland.
0: You know, I, I've been, I haven't been—I have watched the full hearings, but I've been been listening to them over the last couple of days. And I was a I'm incredibly impressed with her. She has exhibited not only a phenomenal command of the subject matter, but a phenomenal command of self-control. And uh, what one of the things that jumps out at me is the set, the the Republican senators did not seem to get the message. You're not going to rattle her. You're really only making yourselves look bad. Um, And in doing so that really says to me, America has not made the progress that a lot of Americans like to think that it has.
9: You know, I don't think these senators, the Republican senators, think they're they're making themselves look bad. Um, it's She's in all likelihood going to get confirmed. All the Democrats will vote for her and probably the Republicans, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who voted for her a year ago for the Court of Appeals. But I think what these Republicans are doing in their vitriolic and, I would argue, racist attacks on her um, is to try to peel off a couple of Democrats from supporting her, uh, Joe Manchin and uh, Kirsten Sinema, and... um, I don't know that they'll be successful in doing that, but I think they also have another agenda. Those of them who are running for re-election, they're speaking to their base with these right-wing and, in some instances, QAnon talking points. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I kind of thought that myself in that, you know, it seems pretty clear that she's going to get through that. A lot of this was, um, you know, they're on stage and they know that um, exactly what we're doing and exactly what's going to happen on CNN and MSNBC and Fox, that people will be like, did you hear what so-and-so Senator so-and-so said? And they want that pushback. And so since there's nothing else they can get out of it, it's a stage to hit the 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 culture wars talking points and the things that they think will. Push the button. You know, throw red meat to the base, as it were.
9: Yes. um, the uh, The big, uh, I guess, the main topic that they harped on um, was started by a tweet from Josh Hawley, which was picked up by the QAnon conspiracy theorists who think that Democrats are pedophiles, and that is trying to paint Judge Jackson as soft on crime. Looking at some of the sentences she gave for people who received or, uh, or watched child pornography. And Josh Hawley had his chart, which showed the guidelines, the sentencing guidelines, which is a range, and then what the prosecutor asked for, and then Judge Jackson's sentence, which was lower than those two things. Now, um, that did not take into account the fact that the sentencing guidelines are really out of date, and uh, she should know because Judge Jackson was on the Sentencing Commission. She was vice chair of the Federal Sentencing Commission. Um, the guidelines for child pornography crimes were written before the Internet, before you could, uh, with one click, see thousands of images. And so they really are out of date, and she was uh, trying to tailor her sentences to the individual case and the individual defendant. In addition, um, the Supreme Court in the Booker case, and she mentioned this, um, said that these guidelines are no longer mandatory. They have to be considered, but they are not mandatory, and in fact... Um, CNN, ABC, The Washington Post, et cetera, um, said that Hawley's charges were meritless, that between 2015 and 2020, um, in the District of Columbia, the district court, which is the trial court in the federal system, um, in 80% of the cases, the judges gave sentences below the guidelines. And so this was red meat for their base. And this tied in with... uh, Ted Cruz's attack on critical race theory, Um, he seized upon a book that is part of the curriculum at a private school in Washington, D.C., where Judge Jackson serves on the board. And this was a book teaching children not to be racist. And so he is attacking critical race theory, which basically says, critical race theory means that racism is not just individual prejudice among individual people. It's systemic in the entire society. In order to really deal with it, you have to deal with it systemically. And so... Uh, and, and critical race theory is an academic theory that is talked about in law school. It's certainly not taught in elementary school, um, or or middle school, or even high school, or probably even college. Although Correct. Uh, these days. So he is trying to put together her support for critical race theory, although she said it's irrelevant to her judging, um, and she said she would never read this book and didn't have any, any, uh, you know, veto power over the curriculum of this private school. Um, He's trying to put that together with her, uh, quote, low, unquote, sentences for Uh, child pornography defendants to say that she is not going to be fair and the reason that they're mounting this what i think is a racist attack on her is because they can't touch her on her credentials there is nobody who has come before the senate judiciary committee being nominated for a justice of the supreme court who has better credentials than she does they're impeccable and so they had to go off on these tangents to throw red meat to their base
0: lindsey graham i think made an absolute fool of himself Uh, On a number of fronts, but one was when he started asking uh, Judge Brown Jackson about her religious beliefs, and he was trying to make the point that uh, Amy Coney Barrett was raked over the coals because she's a Christian and that everybody now wants to give Ketanji Ketanji Brown Jackson a pass. But as I recall, um, Amy Coney Barrett got challenged not because of her re- religious beliefs, but because her religious beliefs seemed to be making their way into her decision-making process. And she was not – she was very clear that that was a major part of the basis of her de- uh, decision-making process as a judge. That's one point. Point number two, uh, going back to the issue – uh, about um, the, the, the uh, pornography, what she said to Holly was, or uh, yeah, you're asking me a policy decision and that's not what I'm here to do. Uh, because he was asking her, you know, about the uh, 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 about the legislation and about the criteria that she was using and why she didn't go another way. And her point was, well, if you want me to go another way, then you, as Congress, you need to change the law. And once you change the law, I can change the basis upon my decision. And third point. There are those who are saying that her coming on the court for as historic as it is won't change the balance of the court, which it won't. But talk about the power of dissenting opinions, because I think her dissenting opinions are something that people should be looking forward to.
9: Yes, those are all good questions. First of all, Lindsey Graham, who I think really humiliated himself with his um Real vitriolic questioning of her. There was one colloquy where he interrupted her at least 14 different times, I, I uh, counted. He wouldn't even let her finish. He was the quintessential bully. And one of the questions he said was, What faith are you, by the way? Can you judge Catholic? Uh, on a scale of one to ten, how religious are you? Just really, really insulting um, and in terms of the sentencing guidelines, yes it 's up to Congress to revise those sentencing guidelines to update them in the computer age it 's not up to a judge um, to to decide. How those sentencing guidelines should work. She follows them, uh, well, she, she considers them. She doesn't have to follow them under the Booker case, the Supreme Court said. And then she looks, makes a holistic determination given all of the facts of the case. And the other thing that's very interesting that apparently the Republicans who had not done their homework didn't realize is that when a judge Pass, imposes a sentence, the judge looks at the guidelines, the judge listens to what the prosecutor said, but the judge also listens to what the defense says, because it is an adversarial system and looks at the report of the probation officer. That's standard practice. I was a public defender for years at the trial and appellate levels. I was in private practice doing criminal defense, trial and appellate levels. And by and large, most of the time, the judge would adopt the report of the probation officer, which, whose recommendation may be very different than the prosecutor's or the guidelines, because that is kind of the fact Fact-finding arm of the court, the probation report. Um, Now there was some dust up about whether uh, the Republicans had access to these uh, probation reports, and a lot of that material is confidential. But um, they they should have done their homework, and they didn't. And your third point, um, it's not going to change the balance of the court because it will still be six to three with the right-wing Republicans in the majority. Although. Roberts kind of goes both ways at times because he's concerned about the legitimacy of the Roberts court and wants to appear fair but dissents often become majorities uh, in the future when the balance of the court changes. Moreover, I think, from what I can tell, that Judge Jackson is every bit as progressive as Sonia Sotomayor, who also, by the way, happens to be the other woman of color on the court, and comes from... She, she's the only other judge who has trial court experience, and she comes from working-class roots. And I think that the two of them will make a be- very powerful alliance. So it's not just a question of counting votes. There's one other thing that I want to mention, and that is uh, most of the Republican senators didn't harp on abortion because they are confident that since they have packed the court, and they talked about court packing, the court has been packed with right-wingers, including by stealing Merrick Garland's seat from Barack Obama, um, that the court is likely to overrule Roe v. Wade in the Massachusetts case, the Dobbs case, uh, by June in this term. And what they signaled is that their next target is same-sex marriage. They talked about Obergefell, which uh, protects the right of people to marry, uh, even not not uh, you know a man and a woman, but same sex partners. And I think that that's the next battle we're going to see. They're going to go after same sex marriage. They talked about um, unenumerated rights in the Constitution, uh, you know, that are not actually. Named in the Constitution, Obergefell found a right to same-sex marriage. The right to abortion is also unenumerated. There are other ones: the right to marriage, the right to, um, you know, interracial marriage, the right for parents,
0: the right to privacy
9: the right to privacy, and that's really what the basis of liberty as well, but liberty and privacy, um, the Supreme Court cobbled together to come up with a constitutional right to
0: abortion. Professor Marjorie Cohn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back.
9: Thank you so much.
0: Folks. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.